Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast, we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to a brand new episode of Identity Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa. If this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, we welcome you and we hope that you come back for future episodes and new content. And if you're a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, we welcome you back and we hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, insightful, and enlightening to your ears and your eyes, however you're checking out us today. So today's episode is one that is, I believe, a very important and timely one. Um, over the past few weeks, and really the past few months, there's been a lot of conversation around critical race theory as it pertains to the K-12 level, and even in some cases, higher education. Uh, we've seen news articles and, and different situations regarding Republicans outlawing the theory in K-12 schools and even just the banning of the teaching of it in our K-12 schools as well. So there's a lot going on and we've seen a lot of misinformation being disseminated in our social media outlets and just throughout the internet regarding this theory. So I brought in two phenomenal ladies who are scholars when it comes to critical race theory. And we're going to get into a deep conversation about what it actually is and why it's imperative for us to have it in our schools and the different ways in which it manifests itself already within our curriculum. So uh, without further ado, I want to bring on Dr. Angel Jones and Dr. Kate Slater to talk to us about critical race theory and, and what it's all about. Hey, ladies. Hey. Hello. How are y'all doing? We're amazing. How are you? Living the dream. I am, listen, I am so pumped away for this conversation for so long, so I'm, I'm excited. And I can't continue without saying congratulations to the both of you, because I know both of you just had your graduation, so you are officially <laughs> doctors. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so yeah, glad yeah. that that I get to do it with with my bestie. It made it that much sweeter. So yeah, life is great, y'all. There have been very few upsides to getting your doctorate during a pandemic, but Dr. Jones <laughs> is one of them. Listen, you all making it look very easy. As you already know, I highly admire the work that you all do in terms of just trying to inform the masses about not just critical race theory, but just everything from just the transparency about just being women in academia uh, to the politics of it and everything that's involved within it. So I just highly admire what you all do. I'm just honored to have you on this platform. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Yeah. We're excited. All right. Yes. So one thing I like to do is to ask my guest to tell us a little bit about yourselves, but also what ultimately brought you into the field of education? So who wants to get started? Um, okay. Uh, she's pointing at me, y'all, so I guess that's All me. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, y'all. Um, I am Angel Jones. My pronouns are she, her, and Aya. I am an educator. Um, it is not just what I do. It is who I am. It is the gift that God has given me. Um, it is literally what wakes me up every day. I always say it makes my heart go pitter-patter, um, and it really does. It is not something I feel like I have to do. It's something I get to do. Like I love, 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 love teaching, um, but never thought that it was what I was going to do. Um, my bachelor's is actually in uh, political science. Um, I was a pre-law major at Syracuse University and wanted to go to law school. 
Um, I still low key want to and might eventually, but um, I started teaching law to fourth graders um, and fell in love with the teaching aspect of it more than the law aspect. Um, and that kind of was the bug that bit me. Um, and I've been in education now for um, about 17 years in many different ways, um, from middle school counselor, high school counselor. Um, now I teach um, undergraduates, masters and doc students. Um, and I love it and cannot and will not imagine my life without educating in some way, shape or form. Besties. Hi everyone. Hi everyone. My name is Dr. Kate Slater and my pronouns are she and hers. And actually, unlike Dr. Jones, I don't necessarily feel like my path to education was very straightforward. It was actually very, very, very kind of circuitous, but circling around the eventual title of educator. Like Dr. Jones, I did not think I was going to be in education. My background was in English and theater, but I loved working in college admissions. And so I started working in college admissions after graduation. And then I found my way to an educational nonprofit that supported underrepresented students of color in applying to master's and PhD programs. And that was really my first insight into beginning to understand and starting to interrogate the structures and systems that I saw in higher education. And so that led me to go back and get my PhD to really begin to, again, understand how inequities show up specifically in educational policies in higher education. And through that, I started teaching courses and now I'm working um, in administration at a college. But I say that because I never in my life really thought of myself as an educator, even though I was working in these educational spaces, they always felt tangential to where the work was actually being done in the classroom. And it's only been recently that I've really understood myself in these spaces as being an educator, albeit a non-traditional one. Awesome, awesome. And I know for myself, Education was something that wasn't a vision for me growing up. I was thinking I was going to go into the NBA and go into Major League Baseball because I was really into sports and I still am to this day. But, mm -hmm. you know, as you get older, you start to realize that, you know, when you're 5'9", five, 5'10", five, and you're a wet 150 pounds, Aww. you're not going to get those original <laughs> scholarships. That's highly unlikely. So you need to change your path. Amen. So Amen. that's what, that's what um, directed me, well, redirected me into education. <laughs> but there, listen, there's always coaching, right? There's always yeah. coaching. They're the dream. The coaching is, yeah. There you go. And coaching is education. It sure is. And when you look at yeah. it, no, yeah. for sure. So, ladies, I mentioned not so long ago that you all just graduated from your respective universities. And I know the path to getting your doctorate is a rigorous one and it's a very tedious one. And there are a lot of challenges that come into play. So um, what I'm interested in knowing from each of you is what were the ups and downs to your journey to professorship in your respective universities and then being women? Because we have to talk about intersectionality, right? We got to talk about how that comes into play when you're navigating the politics of academia and just get into where you currently are right now. And I'm interested in knowing, so in your case, Angel, what does it look like, you know, being an Afro-Latina within this space? And then for you, Kate, being a white woman and a co-conspirator for BIPOC, what does that look like within that same academia space? So if we could just touch on that a little bit. Ooh, that was a lot of questions. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So I would say being an Afro-Latina in the academy is it's an adventure to put it mildly. Um, it is not a place that honestly I saw myself ever being. Um, I'm first gen college student. Um, so the idea of a PhD just wasn't something I ever thought of. Um, and based on the way the academy is structured, uh, they never saw me there either. Um, and I think that they made it clear that not only did they see, not see me there, they didn't want me there. Um, so I dealt with microaggressions, both racial microaggressions that attack me for being black, but also gendered racial microaggressions that specifically come at me for being a black woman. Um, and I think getting your PhD is already one of the hardest things you'll ever have to do. So having to deal with the regular pressures of getting your PhD coupled with microaggressions, um, it was it was a struggle for me on a regular basis. I often questioned if I was going to make it to the end. Like I, I knew that I had the uh, determination to get there and I my work ethic is on 10 at all times, but I was I still wondered if I could make it to the end just because of the mental and emotional toll that was being experienced by my body, by my mind. I actually en ended up in the hospital 
twice um, with symptoms of racial battle fatigue just because of the physical manifestations of what was happening to me. And even though I study racial battle fatigue and study microaggressions, I still wasn't able to identify the symptoms in my own body because when you're in it, it's so hard to see it, right? And I think because there's stress related to being a doc student already, I think I was just explaining everything away. And a lot of my research one that looks at how Black women cope with microaggressions, we like to n- normalize it, right? Or just act like it's not there because it's such a regular everyday part of our lives. But it wasn't until I started to look at my triggers. Okay, when you're feeling this, these physical manifestations, what's happening right before? There was a white, a white professor who was the king of microaggressions when it came to me. And every time I would hear the email notification sound, my pacemaker would go off. I have, I have a heart condition um, because I, I was worried it was him and didn't know if he was going to say something sideways to me again. So like having to go through that on a regular basis, my body literally was like, we can't do this anymore. And I remember the doctor was like, you need to remove what is causing you the stress. And I'm like, I'm not about to remove the program. So like, we need to figure something out. And at the time um, I was seeing a psychiatrist again, also, and he was like, I can't raise your medication anymore, Angel. Like you need to remove yourself. And I was like, y'all don't understand. I'm not leaving this program. Right. So really having to decide like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm not about to let these people kill me. Right. Like literally um, kill me. So I feel like I really had to rethink how I was approaching the situation, how I was seeing myself, how I was not advocating for myself and needed to start doing so because I was literally not fighting for a degree anymore. I was fighting for my life um, in a way that I didn't know I would have to. Wow. Ooh, man. I told you it was a lot. (laughs) No, this is. This, this is heavy. This is heavy. And I want to get more into that in a little bit later. But Kate, why don't you share your journey? Sure, sure. So, you know, my journey had, I would say, some parallel challenges uh, just from being a woman in academia. You know, Dr. Jones and I did our graduation toast with each other, but we also talked very frankly about some of the challenges we both experienced. And for me, I'm the primary breadwinner in my family. My husband does contract work. And so when I applied to grad school, I had to continue to work full time because we use my benefits and my salary. And so for me, my options for my PhD program were really limited because they were programs that were going to allow me to work a 40 day work week and then do my program full time at the same time. And so for three years, I did coursework three nights a week. I would drive and like be on campus and, you know, have my hour commute and work a 40 hour work week. And that became even more complicated when I had our daughter, you know, right before I sat for my qualifying exams. And I think to say all that, what was most challenging for me is just realizing how many systems in higher education are not set up for students that are not doing the student thing full time. There was not a lot of support. You know, I took, for example, a perfect example is I took a a maternity leave of absence, quote unquote, for a semester. And the university didn't even have a code for that in their system. So what they did was they had me as withdrawn. So I didn't have my library access for an entire semester when I was trying to write my dissertation proposal. These are things that they just don't think of. And I think on a personal level, what was really challenging is I know my friends and coworkers meant well, but they would just always say, you're superwoman, you're doing it all. And I was like, I don't feel like superwoman. I feel like a shell of a human being. Like I'm all these three things. I'm a, I'm, I'm working. I'm an associate director. I'm a student. I'm a mom. I'm a partner. I'm a friend. I don't feel like I'm doing any of those things. Well, like, I feel like I am scraping by in all those areas. And even though it was my choice, it was my choice to build all this life with all of these multi-hyphenates in there, there was a time where I just felt, quite frankly, like a shell of a human being because I was giving 25% to every one of those areas. And it was worth it for me. I am so proud of the work I did, and I believe in the work I did, and I felt it was important for me to show Julia, my daughter, you can do this. But I also don't want to pretend that just like Dr. Jones said, there's not a, there's not a cost. There is a cost to this. And the other piece of that is being a white woman in a co-conspirator role feels very fraught all the time. Show me, show me a white person who's a co-conspirator who says, I'm good. I'm secure. I got this. I feel like I know what I'm doing. And I will say, no way. You know, when you represent whiteness, which is a system of oppression, and you are trying to actively do everything in your power to divest from that power that you are just innately given you constantly feel like you're stepping in it. I feel like I'm stepping in it all the time. 
And so sitting in that space where I feel like I'm never going to be really good at this, I'm getting used to it, but it doesn't make it any easier. And of course, I recognize like when I say easier, I recognize that I'm talking about a white woman giving up my power. Like that's that's easy in the scheme of things, but emotionally it, it takes a toll as well. Wow. And for not, I'm not saying this is great because some of this is traumatic, I'm sure. But when I'm listening to both the ladies, I just can't help but think about what goes on in academia. And as someone who's from outside looking in, as someone who's not in it, I just can't imagine just how difficult it is to travel down this path. And just the other day, you know, I was reading up on Nicole Hannah-Jones, who we all should know as the, the creator of the 1619 Project, which has received a lot of backlash particularly from the political right, and also ties into the greater conversation around critical race theory, which is something we're going to get into a little bit. We'll segue into that. But even that alone, just women in academia, particularly Black women and just women in color. And I've had a lot of women of color in academia on this podcast talk about how difficult it is to navigate those waters. So I'm curious to know, in terms of what tenure looks like. And I know you're very much early in that. And I don't know if that's something you're actively pursuing, given what's going on. I'm curious to know, what does tenure look like in general in terms of obtaining it? And do those requirements change depending on what institution you're in? So so getting a tenure track faculty position is like the like it's like the coveted position that everybody wants like that's what you right. aspire to because then the goal is to ultimately become a tenure professor full professor and whatever um and i think for me that used to be my goal mm-hmm. right and i say used to be because i feel like my priorities have changed um how i see myself and the power that i have has changed. So, and I've been very open on social media about it, but I remember what the final number was, but I think I applied to maybe 45 positions and got one interview out of the 45 positions that I had applied to and just started to feel really discouraged and defeated and just not good enough, which is a constant feeling in the academy from when you start your program until forever, apparently. And I think for me, once I got out of my feelings, like I decided to start my brand on social media, to start my company, to start my consulting and doing the things that I'm doing now. And I had no idea the impact that I could actually have doing it this way versus doing it in the academy. Right. So I think for me, we're conditioned and socialized to believe that success has to look one way, that being a rigorous researcher has to look one way. Right. That making it looks one way. Um, and I know differently now, right? Like I believe in public scholarship. I am doing public scholarship. I've had an impact via social media in a way that I never would have had had I had a a full-time tenure track position this whole year. Um, So I think for me, that's not to say that I wouldn't accept a tenure track position, but it's no longer what I'm chasing. Um, Let them chase me now because I know what I'm bringing to the table in a way that I didn't know before. Um, So I don't need that to do good work. I don't need that to educate, advocate, and liberate, which are the things that are always going to drive the work that I do. Yeah, go ahead. Talk that talk. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. Uh, Kay, what about you? So I actually, I'm grateful that I had this position at the IRT because what it meant to, I think, support scholars of color who wanted that gold standard of academia, many of them wanted to enter into that space. I had a really clear understanding from very early on, even before I considered my PhD, of what the pitfalls looked like for people who wanted to enter the professoriate. I had a very clear, like the kind of view that a a lot of people don't get because so many of our alumni would tell us really openly about the process of trying to find a tenure track job and just what a minefield it was. So I was one of the rare people who went into my PhD program saying, I'm gonna do this five years, I do not wanna be academia at the end of, I do not want to be faculty, excuse me, at the end of this. And I didn't quite know what I wanted my path to be at the end. I knew that at the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers, I was doing the kind of work I wanted to do. And I had to trust that getting the PhD would allow me to do that work maybe in different, more expansive ways. Dr. Jones and I talk a lot about how tenure is a really, in many ways, it's a very broken system, just like graduate education is in many ways a very broken system. As you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones is a perfect example. Um, 
all the accolades in the world don't necessarily grant you a spot. All the scholarship in the world doesn't necessarily grant you any easier process. And yet there are people right now who have that full professorship who went through grad school 40 years ago and quite frankly, like really need to retire and <laughs> really need to get out of there and make room for, for the new guard. So it's a, it's a really fraught process because it is the coin of the realm, but tenure itself insulates many faculty from having to grow pedagogically, from having to update their teaching styles, from having to come up with new research and stay on the cutting edge of research. Right. Um, yeah. And so right now, I kind of get the best of all worlds. I get to do public scholarship, just like Dr. Jones online. I am a CRT scholar that's never published an academic article about CRT. You know, that's that's something I want to do in the next year. I know CRT. I've spent five years reading CRT, but I don't have that traditional academic accolade that would signal, quote unquote, I'm a CRT scholar. And yet I get to be out here talking about it in these public spaces and maybe even reaching wider audiences than I would if I was in an academic journal. I get to teach in higher education. I get to be a lecturer in courses that I'm interested in, but I don't have to do that full time. And then being an assistant dean in student affairs, I get to talk to students about how they stay whole in a system that's broken. So I'm finding myself by having these different facets to my roles, I'm scratching all the itches that I wanted to scratch, but I'm not doing it in a way where it's held in the container of one position. And I think that's really awesome, just like Dr. Jones said. And that's why I appreciate the two of you, because what you're really doing is you're reframing the way that scholarship is in academia, but also you're doing your part to dismantle white White supremacy supremacy. culture in academia. Because, Andrew, you were talking about this earlier. There's this one way to do scholarship. You have to publish an article. You have to do an op-ed. And that's part of the tenure process. You have to publish a certain number of publications and books and and also your teaching performance with students, which can be subjective because if you are talking the way that you all talk, you have some students who will give you a bad evaluation because they may not agree fundamentally with your thoughts on race and and gender and everything else. And that can go against your assessment. So that whole process the little that I know is very subjective and can be very disadvantageous for folks like yourselves who are just brilliant at what you do. So I was just curious about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I feel like it feels good to push back. Right. Um, and as critical race scholars, like that's what we do, right? We push back against dominant ideologies. Right. And, you know, so when, when it comes to tenure, when you're evaluated, you're e- evaluated on research, teaching and service. Mm-hmm. Um, and research being what they care about the, the most, specifically uh, journal ar- article publications. And as I'm like, yes, I believe in the research, but I'm like, I'm, I'm an educator, right? And I believe in the service piece. I believe in the teaching piece, right? But I feel like universities don't value those pieces as much as they do. And then even as a Black woman, the things that I do that are 100% service, the university might not count as service, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this additional Black text that we do because there are so few Black faculty members at white at white institutions. So all of the Black students come come to us, right? Whether they're on my last list or not, like they're all going to come to me, right? So I have to do all of the work that the white folks have to do, plus take care and to support my Black students. But there's nowhere to account for that, you know, in our packet for tenure and promotion. Like they don't care about those things. But I've called the institution out on it. I was doing one of my research presentations, um, and there was only one black professor in the room, shocker. And I told him, I was like, Dr. Howard has to do everything the rest of you white professors have to do, plus all of this extra stuff, and he doesn't get credit for it, mm-hmm. right? So I'm just like, let's name what it is. And I just feel like we do a lot of work that should absolutely qualify us for tenure and promotion, but it's not valued the same way because it's so incredibly subjective, but it irks me because they act like it's not subjective. And I'm like, son, all of this is subjective. Like y'all get to decide what counts as rigorous and and what doesn't. Y'all get to decide what counts as academic or scholarly or all of that things. When I'd much rather the people who I care about, which is the community and my students, be the ones that decide if they're being impacted or not by the work that I'm doing. 
Right. And what you're talking about is really the invisible tax, which we talk about really in K-12 education. Former Secretary Dr. John King, he talks about this, how we have to overexert ourselves to be in service to our students, but also to our schools, because we're the ones that are on the diversity task force. We're the ones that have to take on the students of color who end up in our classrooms because maybe our white counterparts can't handle them in their classroom. So it's like, mm-hmm. I, I need you to just, you know, Kwame, just can you hold him for like five minutes because I know he likes you and he's going to listen to you, you know, things like that. But that adds up over time. It sure does. It right. sure does. You and know? I can imagine and, the emotional, yeah. like the, the compounding of that emotional labor, like this is what is creating the echo chamber of elitism that is higher education, Right. It is just gatekeeping over and over and over again. You know, Dr. Jones talked about how she barely made it through her doctoral program, not because she wasn't brilliant, not because she wasn't cut out from it, because the emotional and physical tax of what she was experiencing and going through, this is what gatekeeps on all of these levels. You know, Dr. Jones just published her article in a tier one journal. Did that make her any less of a critical race theory scholar before? Hell no. Yet this is like that kind of accolade signaling that the academy requires. And it's all crap. It all serves to keep the academy this white elitist space. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it's things like that that perpetuates respectability politics as it pertains to people of color in academia. And this idea of incrementalism, which also is talked about in critical race theory, where it's like, all right, we're going to take these steps going to take these minor steps to get to where we want to be. We're going to just settle for less and not really push for the bigger prizes that, that we're looking for. So like, all right, even though it's going to be extra for me, I'm going to be on this task force. All right. I'll teach this extra section for this class, even though I already have to teach four other sections and probably have twice the workload of my other counterparts in my department. But I'm going to do it because I know that that's what the university needs and it's going to get me to where I need to go. So just this idea of incrementalism, right? So if those are perpetuating these white supremacist norms, then for the people that want to get into academia and professoria, how do you approach it then if you can't be, well, you can't be open, but you know what the consequences will be if you are open and you speak your mind? Like, how do you navigate that? Don't do it. Um, just kidding. Um, I, like, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of trash aspects of the Academy. Like uh, Kate and I talk about them ad nauseum, but there are things that I love about it. Like I love being able to be a professor. I love being able to teach. I love being able to do research. Right. But I think for me and my advice to other people is that you need to know who you want to be in this space. You need to know going into it what you're willing to sacrifice, what you're willing to tolerate, what you're not willing to tolerate and sacrifice. Right. Because I feel like when you're in the middle of it, it's so easy to lose yourself. Um, And I think it happens to the best of us. So you have to go in with an intentionality that you've never had before in terms of who you are and who you want to remain. Because yes, we all grow, but I think it's different when we're changing because of growth and we're changing because we're assimilating to the culture that is the academy, right? And I think for me, I was shucking and jiving so much those first two years because I didn't want to piss off white folks, right? I was fully funded. And I'm like, yo, like these white folks are paying your schooling. You don't want to piss them off. And then all of a sudden you're stuck. Right. And I think because I was moving that way, I was miserable. And I think for me, once I realized like, no, like you bring something to the table, you bring a lot to the table. Right. You don't have to beg them for scraps. You don't have to beg them to keep you because you earned your place. Like they didn't give you the space. You earned your spot and your position here. And so I felt like I was like, wait a minute, like I'm going to let my work speak for me. I mean, I think once I started to move that way, I think that that helped me. Um, And then seeing other scholars that live unapologetically and walk in their purpose, I think helps a lot. So for me, I remember seeing Chris Emden for the first time. I was just like, yo, I want to be like him when I grow up, right? Like, Like just really seeing how much he was himself, whether he was at home, whether he was on campus, whether he was on stage in front of thousands, like Chris is Chris in all of those spaces. And I was like, yo, like, 
and he's still a professor at Columbia. He's a New York Times bestseller. Like, he's still doing these things. So I'm like, wait a minute. Like, it is possible. Like, the Academy wants to make you think that it's not possible to do you and be you in these spaces. Mm-hmm. But it is, right? So seeing that. But then even with that, habits like, all right, Angel, he's doing it, but he's also a man, right? So he's going to have some privileges that you don't have, right? So you might, you're going to have to navigate a little bit differently than he does. But I've been able to find myself and my voice and move in a way that feels authentic for me. But does that mean that there are certain jobs that aren't going to want me? Absolutely. Right. Like, I think it's very possible that several of the jobs that I didn't hear back from, like, I have a very public persona now, right? So people can Google me and see, you know, what it is I'm about, what it is I care about. And there might be some schools that are like, actually, no, like, we're not feeling what she's saying. So like, although people might see that as a sacrifice, I'm like, no, like, thank you for letting me know up front who you are. Because I don't want to be in those spaces anymore. Right? Like, I don't want to have to be anywhere where I have to check and job. I don't want to have to be anywhere where I don't get to be me. And if that means I never get a, a tenure track position, I'm good with that. Right. Because what I'm not good with is pretending to be someone that I'm not for them. Like, never am. Mm. Uh, facts. And there was a piece of that for me where I actually found that when I found my community, I became much more rooted in who I was, too. And this is, again, where academia tells you, no, like, don't be friends with people in your cohort because those are your competition for those tenure track jobs. And it's all crap, right? Because, you know, what Dr. Jones has shown through Counter-Story, what you've shown, Kwame, is like the power of community to, like, keep you on the straight and narrow, to keep you, like, grounded and centered in who you are and what you do is incredibly powerful. And I, I, can, I can remember so vividly the moments where I went into academic spaces and found this beautiful community. And it was so counter to what my notions of academia looked like. But you know, we saw it at the IRT all the time. You'd be at an academic conference and people would be like, IRT, they'd, you know, they'd find you. They would look out for you for jobs. They'd be like, oh my God, I know a job. I know, I know a person here, let me connect you. These are like foundationally opposed to what the dominant narrative of an academia experience is like. And I think that for me, when I learned to really lean away from the competitive and cutthroat and individualistic aspects of academia and started to say, no, 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 like you're not going to get through this alone. You need people to keep you. You need people to keep you focused. You need people to keep keep you humble. And you need people to remind you of who you are in the moments where you feel like you've lost touch with who you are. That's what kept me grounded. And that's what's been so rewarding, especially, you know, now after graduating is to keep that doesn't end for me, right? I get to do this in perpetuity. Oh man. And that's what's great about is the fact that you can be in collaboration with so many brilliant minds who are doing this work in so many different capacities. And this is what brings me to really the meat of what our conversation is today, critical race theory. And you all have been very vocal about it and you've spoken your piece about it in in many different IG lives and, and other platforms. And you've had to even battle some trolls on different social media outlets who are just misinformed about what it is, you know, and and I personally love it. But I just hope that you're also prioritizing self-care because, you know, they're going to believe what they believe. But that's another conversation. So critical race theory for our viewers and listeners who don't even know what it is. And I actually have here the actual book in case people want to know what the actual book is. Y'all see how thick this is. Okay, this can be intimidating for you. It's all good. But guess what? I've been reading this version right here. This is the primer, which then you can pair with this to actually look for key readings that connect to the major themes of critical race theory. And we'll talk more about that. But let us know what actually is critical race theory and what are the basic tenets of it? Oh, Dr. Jones, take it away. (laughs) Kate loves what I do the intro for it. Perfectly. Um, Okay. So in a nutshell, critical race theory, it is a framework that acknowledges the roles that race and racism play in our society. It is built on the premise that racism is embedded in the fabric of our systems, all of our systems, right? Whether that's education, healthcare, criminal injustice system, like all of the systems within our country um, have racism embedded within it. It originally started out of critical legal studies by phenomenal scholars such as Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell. The CRT that I use specifically is CRT within education. So CRT has been adapted to 
different fields, but because we're on an education podcast and Kate and I are educators, we specifically look at CRT in education. So Dr. Daniel Solorstino came up with the five tenets that are based off of the original tenets of CRT. The first one is that racism is endemic. So kind of what I was just talking about. It challenges dominant ideologies and deficit perspectives, right? So this main narrative that we live in a post-racial society, right? So this idea that because we have a Black VP, we had a Black president, all of a sudden racism no longer exists. It's not true. Racism is alive and well in this country. The third one is the importance of centering the voices and experiences of marginalized folks. The idea that our experiences are real, right? That our accounts of our experiences are good enough, that they should count and should be centered. A interdisciplinary analysis or perspective when we're looking at things, right? So kind of what Kate was talking about, like not this individualistic thing that, okay, like my way is the right way. Like what does psychology say about what is the historical inferences or implications of what is we're looking at, right? Like how are we using multiple disciplines to look at what is happening? And uh, the fifth tenet is a commitment to social justice. At the end of the day, when we do what we do, we're not just doing it for the sake of doing it, right? There are a lot of researchers that are considered rigorous academics that just do knowledge for the sake of knowledge, right? Our goal of the work that we do is to create a better world for marginalized folk, right? Like we want our work to push things forward, to help liberate our folks, to make sure that we're actually fighting for social justice. And Dr. Jones and I have heard some wild counter arguments in the past few weeks again. It is largely, largely misunderstood. And the ones that I see the most are the ones that equate CRT with all anti-racist movements, culturally responsive pedagogy, anti-bias, anti-racist, multiculturalism, like critical race theory is a very specific way of looking at the world. And I think there are two really pervasive anti-CRT narratives. One is that CRT creates oppression, that by naming systemic oppression that already exists, it, it somehow creates it, which, you know, again, if you look at the central tenets, you know, it's simply naming and shedding light on something that already exists. It is not somehow creating more oppression by naming that reality, right? And the other one that I hear a lot is that CRT victimizes people of color, which, you know, again, if you think about the CRT tenets, the centering of the lived experiences, the commitment to social justice, the commitment to ending racial subjugation, again, these are the exact opposite of these kind of dominant anti-CRT narratives. And I think that I found that what often emerges when I am talking to a troll, which I've had to rain way back on, is that a conversation about whether or not CRT should be taught actually becomes a conversation about whether or not systemic racism is real. And CRT is based on fact that systemic racism is real. This is not an opinion as to whether or not it's there, but for the people that don't want to see systemic racism, CRT is a complete threat to their worldview that subscribes to upholding whiteness and white supremacy. So that's a lot of the pushback we hear. <laughs> and I read it every day on my timeline. I see it in other social media outlets. And you mentioned the fact that critical race theory tends to be merged with other anti-racist and culturally relevant curricula. So I mentioned 1619 Project, for example. The fact that former President Trump countered that with the 1776 commission, right? And other senators and people in Congress are pushing these bills to try to get rid of that. But what I will say is, and of course you are the scholar, so you can correct me if I'm going astray. Don't those different curricular frameworks provide justification as to why critical race theory is important, right? The fact that there are so many states pushing for ethnic studies curricula at the secondary level, the fact that we have a 1619 project, the fact that we have other websites like a Zen education project, or even rethinking schools among many of these, running for justice. I can go on and on. That alone should let us know why critical race theory is important. But I want to go deeper into that. I want to know how can we cover this in our K-12 curricula? And for those who are wondering, what does that look like? What can that sound like? Because we know that's not directly covered in our curricula. This is something that's done at the graduate level in colleges, right? But yet we're banning it (laughs) from our K-12 school system, even though it's not even there to begin with. So let's talk about that. What can we do to integrate at least the philosophy of the theory in our academic curricula? 
Um, I'm glad you mentioned that. So when CRT, like actual CRT, the roots and core of CRT are taught, they're taught in law school, because like I said, it originated from critical legal studies, or they're taught in grad school for a reason, because the actual roots are very complicated, right? Like I took full courses on CRT. Like it wasn't just, oh, I, I read a book. No, like we had an entire course just on critical race theory, and there, there's a reason for that. But because it, it is a framework, educators can still use that framework when they approach their teaching, when they approach, when admins approach the policies and practices in their school, they can still use a critical race theory lens or framework, right? So when, so for example, if you're looking at discipline data, right? Because we know in, in K-12, there's a disproportionality with regards to the number of black and brown kids that are sent to the principal's office or expelled or suspended. Instead of just looking at those numbers at face value and assuming it's because black and brown kids are just bad, critical race theory to like, wait a minute, there's racism embedded in all of our systems, right? What role might racism be playing in what's happening right here, right? If you're thinking about how you're going to create your lesson plan, right? Like think about the people that you are putting in front of your students. Think about the authors, voices that you're centering versus not centering, right? Like the, the educators themselves can take a critical race approach without necessarily having to teach the five tenants or the three tenants, if you go back to the uh, originals, to six-year-olds. Like, like we're not asking seven-year-olds to learn what entrance convergence is, right? Like that's not what this is, even though that's what people are making it out to be. Because like, okay, you're saying earlier, at the end of the day, they're not arguing for against CRT. They're arguing against accepting the fact that systemic racism exists and mm -hmm. is permeating throughout all of our systems, including our educational system. Absolutely. It, exactly. When you think of it as a framework, it's just a, a way in which you conduct your classroom in a way in which you center curriculum that subscribes to these five tenets. And, you know, Sylvia Duckworth and, and Dr. Jones and I both talked about the example of the narrative of Columbus. Again, you're not talking to seven-year-olds about interest convergence theory, but you can talk to seven-year-olds about what is the dominant narrative. And again, you might not use those words, but what is the dominant narrative of Columbus? He discovered America, you know? But what happens when we talk about he didn't discover America? What if we try and investigate the stories that haven't been brought to the forefront? How about we investigate, you know, the, the tribes that came in contact with him? If we are centering the lived experiences of people of color, why don't we learn about how those tribes have continued out today and what those tribes are doing today? And what are some of the narratives of people who exist in those tribes? You know, these, again, are ways of modifying your curriculum to push back on the dominant hegemonic narratives, to think about whose voices you're centering and why, to think about power systems that show up in your curriculum that you need to be cognizant of and critique. And again, with this mission towards social justice at the end of the day as being that that container that you put it all in. Right. And I feel like even with the Columbus narrative, we're talking about just settler colonialism. We talk about indigenous people like that's something that we have mm -hmm. to address in our schools. But it also ties back into critical race theory. So it goes back to the fact that it's a framework. You're not teaching actual curriculum, but you're actually using that influence to let people know that, hey, we have different people from different cultural backgrounds, people that speak different languages, people who practice different faiths religiously. We have to factor all these in. And that also ties into the whole narrative of critical race theory. So wondering, with regard to just the fact that we have different students who come from different walks of life, so going back to just the intersectional identities of our students, particularly our BIPOC community, how can we go about addressing the intersectionality of their identities within our work? And how does that influence the work that we do in terms of anti-racism and building racial literacy? I think for me, the first thing that, I mean, that's what CRT does, y'all. Like, I feel like people are hating on something. I'm like, yo, like, no, like, there's a framework that is telling you to check yourself, right? That is telling you to think about intersectionality. Like, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw is one of the founders of critical legal studies, right? So, like, we're talking about what 
these things mean, what intersectionality means. And then there are other frameworks that have been adapted or are extensions of CRT, right? So there's Latcrit, which talks about the experiences of the Latinx community, right? There's Discrit, which talks about thinking about the oppressive systems against people with disabilities. There's Langcrit, which talks about things like anti-Black linguistic racism from Dr. April Baker Belt, right? There are these frameworks that force us to interrogate things, right? And to understand that there are all these systems of oppression that are attacking our students, right? That are impacting our students that we should be thinking about all the time, right? So even if we're not teaching our students discred and langcred and queercred and all of these things, we as educators should be educated in them so that way we know how we should be approaching our teaching that in a way that acknowledges the intersectionality of their identity and how multiple systems of oppression are impacting their ability to learn and be educated and become successful. Mm. I don't have much to add, except I see the ties there between CRT and obviously culturally responsive pedagogy, which is premised on the fact that you, when your students show up in your classroom, you treat them like the whole autonomous human beings that they are, not empty vessels that you dump your knowledge in. They're people with identities. They're people with backgrounds, with lived experiences, and you meet them where they are, excuse me. And again, even though culturally responsive pedagogy and CRT are not the same thing, a CRT framework, you bring that into your classroom. This is like the foundation that you operate from as an educator. And so what Dr. Jones said about these offshoots of CRT, I think they give us so much potential to understand how identities intersect. They give us so much opportunity to really take a, a rigorous, multi-layered, nuanced look and how these identities fold in on each other. And this is the beauty of CRT, that it can be this expansive, that it can be this applicable in so many different areas. It's not even just limited to racism, right? Even though it foregrounds that at the center. Oh, absolutely. And wow, we could talk about this all day, but I know we're in a time crunch. So I'd like to just go right into the lightning round and we'll go through this real quickly because I want to be respectful of everybody's time. But man, this has just been an awesome conversation and we might have to do a part two if we can fit it in somehow. But I want to ask you all this question because you are doing some heavy lifting right now when we talk about just everything in academia, critical race theory, and then other things that you're advocating about as well. What do you all do for self-care? Besides text each other. Legit is how we take care. Um, I just came back from Puerto Rico. So that was definitely my self-care. It felt really, really, really good. Honestly, being in community with people like Kate and other people that get it, that understand what it feels like to do the work that we do, I think for me has been very healing and reaffirming. I'd second that. I'd second that in a heartbeat. Being in community is great. And I'd say the one other thing is, Let me tell you, nobody keeps you humble like a toddler. My kid could not give less of a crap about the stuff I'm dealing with, with trolls online or people who are anti-CRT. She's just like, are we watching Penguins of Madagascar or are we not, you know? And I think sometimes that can be really tough to juggle. So it's not necessarily self-care, but I think it's a good way of reminding myself, you know, what's going on on Instagram is, is not your whole life. There's so much more out there. There's connection, there's community, there's family, there's people who you love. Give them your time and energy because that's what sustains you. Right. And then the last question I'll ask for this is if you're at a dinner table and each of you could invite two people to dinner, dead or alive, influential figures, who would they be? Mine are easy. Audre Lorde and Toni Morrison. They are women that gave me life, that still give me life. Their readings their words show me that mine are powerful, right? Like I write because they wrote first and I continue to write because I want to make them proud and I want their sacrifices to never be in vain. So I would love to just sit at their feet and just listen. Mine would be the two Glorias, Gloria Steinem and Gloria Ladson Billings. I just want them to hang out with each other because their work is in many ways very parallel, but in very different circles. You know, Gloria Steinem, (laughs) activist, activist, activist. Gloria Ladson Billings, activist, but in the education space. But I would just sit there, I'd sit back, let the wine flow, and let them talk about their histories because they've seen some stuff. Listen, and I'm a little jealous of Angel. You had a chance to talk to the OG Dr. Gloria. I sure Ladson did. Billings. I sure did. Oh, you know what I mean? Amazing. You know, you might help a brother out, put a good word <laughs> in for him. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on to I'll the podcast. I'll see what I can uh, do. Kwame, it's like talking about. It's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I'm like, I know someone who knows Gloria Lutz and Billings. She's the girl. Right. <laughs> Ooh, 
Dr. Angel Jones and Dr. Kate Slater. I just love saying doc. I just love saying that. <laughs> I just rolls off my tongue. Listen, ladies, I love y'all. Thank you all for love coming you. on to the platform. Thank you. Keep on disrupting. You already know that you got my support with trolls and anybody else that try to shut you down, whatever. So you just know that, you know, I support what you are doing. And real quickly, just share how people can follow you on social media and just other things that you're doing. So I am Angel Jones, PhD on everything. So Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. My website, angeljonesphd.com. By the time this comes out, we will have already announced it, so it's okay. But my bestie and I are starting our own podcast, our own show starting this week. It'll be weeknights on Thursdays. That flyer will be out tomorrow. That's why I don't feel bad saying it here because we would have already said it. So I can't wait because people have been asking us to do something consistently. So we're like, all right. Gotta give the people what they want. So we are ready to bring all the smoke. It's gonna be great. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. We are so, so stoked about this podcast. It's gonna be a lot, but it's 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 just an excuse for us to talk with each other for an hour each week. Um, so I am at Cater Slater on Instagram. I don't really do Facebook. I don't really do Twitter. That is a scary place for me. But you can also check out my website, which is kateaslater.com. I contribute to NBC Today. I write a lot about social and racial justice on there. So all my articles are published there. And otherwise, catch up with Dr. Jones and I every Thursday night. All right. Y'all heard that. See how she flexed a little bit. She talked about NBC Today. Are you trying to tell me that they can't get tenure? Listen, (laughs) put some respect on their names. Put some respect on their names. I'm going to help you out a little bit with Dr. Angel Jones. She does doctoral coaching. So if you're someone that's in that journey right now, go holler at her. She can give you some pointers and provide you with some actionable steps to get you to where she is right now. And in case of Dr. Kate Slater, she has the anti-racist roadmap, which is an influential document, particularly if you're somebody who is a novice or very new to this space. It's just a great way to navigate it. And it provides some very fundamental steps to get you to where you need to be. So you can be an active co-conspirator, just like Dr. K Slater. So and, and it's free. So there are no excuses. Free 99. Come on now. Free 99. Free 99. <laughs> Come on, y'all. It doesn't get better than this. But ladies, thank you so much. And listen, congratulations again. You all are just inspirations to so many young women out there who are aspiring to get into academia. So I just want to put that out there and just keep doing what y'all doing and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Thank you. Bye, Bye, y'all. <laughs> All right, y'all. And here you have it, people. We are about to end another fantastic and incredible episode of our Day Tough Educators Live. And as always, I wish you all a good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live. And that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming platforms. We're always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard tonight, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at www.identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you and have a great day.